Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 32, Apollo Program Flight 2, Apollo 8, Part 1. Fly Me to the Moon. A long time ago, a time when Roman emperors still ruled, the world was dominated by myth and legend, and the moon remained a mystery. A group of ambitious Polynesian explorers set off from the safety of their shores and headed for open water. They used their impressive oceanic navigation techniques to safely guide their small canoes from tiny island to tiny island, covering vast expanses of hostile, unforgiving emptiness. Despite the immense distances and hazards involved, these explorers arrived at their destination, a rich chain of islands where they could farm the land, create their kingdoms, and live their lives, all surrounded by unthinkable watery desolation. Thousands of years later, these islands were known as Hawaii. On December 21st, 1968, a person standing on those same shores, equipped with a sufficiently powerful telescope, could have looked to the heavens just to their south and seen something that their ancestors could not have imagined, but certainly could have empathized with. High above Hawaii, three brave explorers were leaving safe shores behind and setting off into the void. This is the story of Apollo 8. Let's take a quick step back. Last time, we returned to flight with the 101% successful mission of Apollo 7. Tasked with putting the extensively reworked Apollo Command and Service module through their paces in low Earth orbit, the crew of Wally Schirra, Don Isley, and Walter Cunningham spent 11 days in space and proved that Apollo was up to the task. Among other things, we learned that the CSM windows tended to fog over due to outgassing sealants, that TV broadcasts in space are fun for the ground, but irritating for the astronauts, and that if you needed to, um, avail yourself of the facilities, be sure you had some time to kill. Looking at the list of Apollo mission types produced by the Manned Spacecraft Center, Apollo 7 would be a C-type mission. A would be an uncrewed flight of the command and service modules, accomplished on Apollo 4 and 6, and B would be an uncrewed flight of the lunar module, accomplished on Apollo 5. Next in line would be, you guessed it, a D-type mission. This would be a manned mission of both the CSM and LEM in low Earth orbit, allowing an evaluation of the full Apollo stack while still staying close to home. Following that was E, which would be a repeat of D but in a much higher orbit, then F, which was a full dress rehearsal for the landing, bringing the CSM and LEM out to the moon and flying down to only 50,000 feet before returning, and lastly G, the first lunar landing. There were also a few other types that we'll get into a few episodes down the line. In the summer of 1968, Apollo 7 was nearly ready to launch, and final plans were being made for the following flight, a D-type mission flying the CSM and LEM in low Earth orbit. There was just one problem, the lunar module was not yet ready to fly. The spindly beast of a spacecraft had been up against schedule pressure since day one, thanks to its relatively late addition to the Apollo program. Combine that with challenging requirements and stark engineering realities, and you end up with a blown deadline. The LEM was having ongoing issues with leaks in the coolant system, breaks and short circuits in its delicate wiring, and that old boogeyman of rocket scientists everywhere, combustion instability. The closer the scheduled D-type mission came, 
the more apparent it was that it would fly several months behind schedule. At this point, there were a couple of options, and none of them were great. The D-Type mission could simply wait until the LEM was ready, introducing a delay of several months at a time when NASA could scarcely afford it. Another option was to fly a second C mission, a repeat of Apollo 7. That too wasn't very appealing, since if Apollo 7 went well, there wouldn't be much more to learn. Instead, George Lowe had an idea. Lowe was the manager of the Apollo Spacecraft Program Office in Houston, and was one of the major figures of the entire Apollo program. His idea? Why not send a command and service module to the moon? At first glance, the idea was sort of crazy. Sort of really crazy. The flight would require a Saturn V, which had only ever flown twice, neither time with a crew, would commit the CSM to a lengthy and dangerous mission on only the second manned flight, and would require a major shakeup to the mission schedule. But it also made a lot of sense. Flying to the moon now would be just as lengthy and dangerous as it would be in a few months. A CSM and Saturn V were ready to fly, and NASA had nothing else that could fly until at least the spring. Assuming that Apollo 7 had no major issues, there didn't seem to be any reason why they couldn't fly to the moon in December of 1968. Lowe brought his idea to Chris Kraft, the head of mission control, Deke Slayton, the head of the astronaut office, and Bob Gilruth, the director of the Manned Spacecraft Center, to see what they thought. The verdict was that it was one hell of a challenge, but it might just be possible. There were a lot of questions to be answered. Could a crew be ready in time? Slayton said yes. Could another Saturn V booster be ready in time? Werner von Braun said yes. Could the guidance software be ready in time? Again, yes. Everything looked promising, but the group decided it would be best to keep this idea quiet until it was a sure thing. One wrinkle in the plan, headquarters still had no idea it was happening. NASA Administrator James Webb and Associate Administrator of the Office of Manned Spaceflight George Miller weren't even in the country at the time. Both were in Vienna for a meeting. When they learned what the guys back home had come up with, they were both furious. It seemed as if they had waited for their superiors to leave the country before effecting a little coup d'etat. But once cooler heads prevailed, they started to come around on the idea. There was a lot that could go wrong. The Saturn V wasn't exactly a known quantity yet, and if there was a repeat of the pogo oscillations seen on the uncrewed Apollo 6, it would mean an embarrassing failure at best and loss of the crew at worst. The CSM had flown multiple times, but only once with a crew on board. And during that entire mission, they were only one short retro burn away from an emergency landing. Once the proposed mission fired its engine to depart for the moon, its options were much more limited. And once it was set on its way, the danger was only just beginning. From there, they would need to accomplish an astounding navigational feat, traveling 240,000 miles and passing about 70 miles in front of an object moving 2,000 miles per hour. Yikes. Not only that, the proposed mission wasn't a simple one-time loop around the moon before heading home. Instead, the spacecraft would fire up the service propulsion system for four long minutes in order to slow down and enter into orbit around the moon. Ten orbits, actually. This meant that in order to get back, the SPS would have to burn again to send the crew home. If the SPS failed at that point, the spacecraft would remain in orbit around the moon for years to come. 
a grim reminder of a bold mission that ended in failure. But with great risk comes great reward. If this flight was successful, it would add an enviable first to NASA's growing list. It also meant that they could say they had made it to the moon within the decade, even if they weren't able to stick the landing by the end of the 60s after all. In addition, it would also cut the Soviets off from a potential propaganda victory. In the years and months leading up to late 1968, the Soviets had been flying new spacecraft. They had also sent several vehicles, believed to be capable of supporting a crew, around the moon and successfully recovered them. If the Soviets flew out to the moon, looped around, and safely landed, they could just declare victory and go home. They could say that they had been to the moon first and didn't feel the need to land, since their robots could always deliver samples for them. It would cast the entire Apollo program in a very different light. Lastly, by going directly from low Earth orbit to the moon, the E-type extreme high-altitude test flight could be skipped entirely, saving both time and resources. The lunar module was definitely not going to be ready in time for the next flight, regardless of where it went. So the mission that used to be known as Apollo 8 became Apollo 9, but otherwise remained the same. Its crew would perform the D-type shakedown mission of the LEM along with the CSM, and prove that rendezvous was possible with these new spacecraft. The new Apollo 8 had its real goals kept quiet from the public, though NASA did start to drop hints that higher altitude options were a possibility. Commitment to the full moonshot would have to wait until October, when the outcome of Apollo 7 was known. So who would be the first to leave our home planet and see the far side of the moon with their own eyes? It seems that at first the mission was offered to the original crew of Apollo 8, Jim McDivitt, David Scott, and Rusty Schweikart. However, McDivitt declined the offer since his crew had already been training for months with the lunar module. The crew of original Apollo 9 had only just begun their LEM training, so it wouldn't be nearly as disruptive. And really, the high-altitude E-type mission they were training for was pretty similar. This was just a little higher altitude. Let's meet the crew. Flying in the left seat as commander would be Frank Borman. We know Borman already as the commander of the lengthy Gemini 7. Shattering the record for longest human spaceflight, he and Jim Lovell remained in Earth orbit for nearly two weeks in their tiny spacecraft. Borman was an excellent choice for this mission, since he had been working closely with North American Aviation on the design and construction of the Block 2 CSM. He was intimately familiar with the vehicle inside and out. He was also a disciplined and focused commander who demanded a similar performance from his crew. This was his second and final spaceflight. In the center couch would be Command Module Pilot Mike Collins. Except, whoops, throwing a further wrench in the crew reshufflings, Collins required surgery for a painful bone spur on his spine and would need months to recover before being cleared to fly in space again. Instead, he would be replaced by his backup and the other half of Gemini 7's crew, Jim Lovell. Since they had worked together so extensively in the past, Borman knew he could depend on Lovell as a more than competent astronaut and solid teammate. He also had detailed knowledge of the navigation equipment and techniques, so was perfect for this first deep space mission. This was his third of four spaceflights. Rounding out the crew was Lunar Module Pilot Bill Anders, sitting in the seat on the right. William Allison Anders, or Bill to his friends, was born on October 17, 1933 in Hong Kong. 
That may be a little unexpected, but his father was a lieutenant in the Navy and was stationed there at the time. After a few more trips back and forth across the world as a child, he attended the U.S. Naval Academy and then joined the U.S. Air Force. While there, he flew as a fighter pilot in an all-weather intercept squadron. He later attended the Air Force Institute of Technology at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and received a master's degree in nuclear engineering. In 1963, he joined NASA as part of Astronaut Group 3. Thanks to his specialized knowledge in nuclear engineering, he became the go-to guy in the astronaut corps for questions on radiation. With the Van Allen belts presenting an imposing obstacle to any lunar flight, radiation was a top concern. As LMP, Anders had been studying the ins and outs of the lunar module for what would have been an E-type medium-orbit mission with the CSM and LEM, but suddenly had that replaced with this unique flight. He believed that while it was an honor to be part of this historic mission, the lack of LEM experience could hurt his chances to eventually walk on the moon. It seems he may have been right, as this was his first and only spaceflight. Planning any space mission is challenging. These days, I've seen firsthand just how much time and effort goes into maintaining the orbit of a well-established mission. Crewed missions, that's C-R-E-W-E-D, present a new layer of complexity and constraints. And lunar missions add another layer of complexity and constraints on top of that. Mission design is an entire discipline of aerospace engineering, so I won't be able to get into all of the facets of the Apollo 8 design here, but I want to give you a taste. In order to get a feel for the complexity of the Apollo 8 mission design, we're going to talk about a trimmed-down version of one aspect, launch window planning. Every space mission has a launch window, a predetermined span of time in which the mission can begin. Some missions are a lot more lax than others. For instance, rolling the clock back to Alan Shepard's flight aboard Freedom 7, the launch window was mostly just dictated by the length of the day and how long they could keep the recovery forces in place. Moving forward to John Glenn's orbital flight, the primary concern was adequate lighting at the expected landing area at the expected landing time. No one wants to try to recover a tiny spacecraft in the dark. But both of those missions had fairly open constraints. They weren't really trying to be anywhere at a specific time, and they weren't really trying to meet anything at a specific place. Fast-forwarding a bit to Project Gemini, things have changed. When the time came to launch Gemini 9A on its mission to rendezvous with the Agena target vehicle, the window was only 40 seconds long. Why so short? Well, without getting into all the dynamics of orbital rendezvous, the short answer is that if you want to catch up to something moving at 17,500 miles per hour, you better time things right. With Apollo 8, again things have changed. The mission still involves a rendezvous of sorts, but with a target that has its own deep gravity well. It also happens to be 240,000 miles away. We're going to ignore a bunch of logistical stuff like how long can the support forces stay out in the water, and how long can we leave this rocket full of liquid hydrogen, and just focus on the orbital dynamics of this situation. To start, we're going to imagine that the moon orbits directly above the Earth's equator, and that we're launching from the equator just to keep things simple. The basic maneuver, as any player of Kerbal Space Program will know, is to start in a low parking orbit around the Earth, and then raise our apogee, the orbit's highest point, until it reaches the moon. This is simple enough, just wait until the spacecraft is on the opposite side of the Earth as the moon, turn on the engines, 
and wait until the apogee reaches 240,000 miles, a maneuver called Translunar Injection, or TLI. Ah, but now the complications begin. Right off the bat, you'd have a problem, since by the time you reach the top of your orbit three days later, the moon would have moved about 150,000 miles to the side around its orbit. Whoops. Okay, so instead of trying to place our apogee where the moon is, let's try placing it where the moon will be in three days. This shifts our burn point over a few degrees in the spacecraft's Earth orbit. So what we really want is to have our rocket be at that specific point in Earth orbit at that specific time required to ensure that three days after our burn, we arrive at where the moon will be. With me so far? With this goal decided, everything boils down to three phases. Launch, coast, and burn. Looking at these in reverse order, we already know where, when, and for how long we want to burn the engine. The burn needs to happen at a point near the opposite side of the Earth from where the moon will be in three days, about three days before we want to be at the moon, and, well, you can do the math for the last part. Coast refers to how long we wait between our initial orbit insertion and the translunar injection burn. In our moon is above the Earth's equator problem, this is easy. Just wait until we pass around the Earth to the point that we care about. Since our hypothetical launch site is already in the plane of our hypothetical orbit, launch is equally easy. Just launch whenever you like. Just be sure to leave enough coast time to perform your systems checkouts before TLI. As is so often the case, however, the real world has thrown us another curveball. The moon does not orbit directly above the Earth's equator. In fact, its ground track is constantly changing. This is because the moon's orbit is inclined about 5 degrees to the ecliptic, which is the plane containing the sun and the Earth. On top of that, the Earth itself is tilted about 23 degrees with respect to the ecliptic. This means that if you imagine the moon's ground track as a circle around the Earth, that circle's tilt with respect to the equator will vary between about 28 degrees and 18 degrees. The reason I tell you all this is because you remember that special spot where we need to perform our TLI burn? That spot is always somewhere on that circle. If you did the burn somewhere else, you wouldn't be in the same plane as the moon's orbit, and you'd be going, I don't know, somewhere else, but not the moon. In addition to this, our launch site is not on the equator either, but rather is in Florida, at 28 degrees latitude to be exact. Hey, 28 degrees? That number sounds familiar. It's the same as the maximum angle of the plane of the moon's orbit to the equator. Coincidence? You be the judge. The upshot of all these degrees and inclinations and planes is that the timing of the launch becomes a lot more important. If we want to go to the moon, we have to launch into the same plane as the moon's orbit. The way to do this is to essentially just wait for the Earth to rotate until the launch site arrives in the correct plane. Once that happens, launch in the direction of your plane, and you'll find yourself in a nice parking orbit that's lined up with the moon. Coast until you hit the specific calculated point, and then burn the engine, and off you go. If you play everything in reverse from the TLI burn, you'll find out what time you need to launch. Factor in the launch vehicle's capability to correct any issues with the trajectory, and you've got your launch window. That's a pretty rough, but hopefully somewhat intelligible explanation of how one aspect of launch windows are calculated. But even this stripped-down version is leaving out a lot of details. We didn't talk about what's involved in targeting a specific inclination once the spacecraft arrives at the moon. We didn't talk about what's necessary to ensure a certain lighting condition at the moon, 
which is pretty important if you don't want to land in the dark. We didn't talk about the fact that the launch angle is limited by the need to not fly over populated areas for safety reasons. And we didn't talk about mass concentrations around the Earth and the Moon, uncertainty in booster performance, space weather, tracking and communications requirements, lighting conditions at launch, lighting conditions and abort sites, and on and on and on and on and on. Once again, space is hard. Space is so hard, in fact, that in a first for the space above us, the flight itself is going to have to wait until next time. It turns out that I had a lot to say about Apollo 8, and just couldn't fit it into our normal episode length. Actually, if anyone has a strong opinion either way on this, I'd be curious to hear some feedback. So as always, feel free to email me at jp at thespaceabove.us, or tweet me at at spaceaboveus. Do you like getting a little more down in the weeds, even if it means occasionally splitting episodes? Or do you like staying at a higher level so we can move things along? In either case, we will be moving things along in two weeks, as we hear about the incredible deep space journey of Apollo 8. This week, I leave you with this, the actual text of the invitation sent by NASA to certain VIPs for the launch. You are cordially invited to attend the departure of United States spaceship Apollo 8 on its voyage around the moon, departing from Launch Complex 39, Kennedy Space Center, with the launch window commencing at 7 a.m. the 21st of December, 1968. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. 